Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us for our study called Killing Me, Why Dying to Self is the Only Way to Truly Live. We think this series has the potential to change our lives. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. I wanted to start this morning with a a goofy old song. Is that okay? Uh, It's a song that we used to sing in the hills of West Virginia on the playground. And I just learned this morning that other people sang it too. I always thought it was a hillbilly thing, but I guess it's not. Uh, So if this song rings a bell for you, then join me in singing it, okay? But it goes like this. Can you indulge me in this? Normally, if you're a guest, I don't normally start this way, but it's just different. So, and that's this. Here's the song. It says, there's a hole in the bucket, dear Liza, dear Liza. There's a hole in the bucket, dear Liza, a hole. And Liza answers by... So fix it, dear Henry, dear Henry, dear Henry. So fix it, dear Henry, dear Henry. Fix it. With what shall I fix it, dear Liza, dear Liza? With what shall I fix it? See, you know that too, don't you? And she says, some tape, dear Henry, dear Henry, dear Henry. Some tape, dear Henry, dear Henry. Some tape. And he goes, It leaks, dear Liza, dear Liza, dear Liza, it leaks, dear Liza, dear Liza, it leaks. And on and on and on and on they go. And you know, it's one of those songs you can make up your own verses to it as you go. And as kids, we'd have a great time with that, you know, and I I see some of you did as well. But the song's a great metaphor, actually, for the way that our lives go. Have you ever noticed how every time we try to fix something, that the fix that we come up with tends to create other problems? And it seems like we fix it, but it just gets worse. You know, like, I'm not super great at history, so some of you can correct me in this, but, you know, we had the Industrial Revolution, what, about 100 or so years ago, and then with that comes the rise of modern machinery, and that's supposed to make our lives easier. It was. That's how it was sold to us. I wasn't alive back then, but that's what I read. It's supposed to make our lives easier, right? Only, you know what, now, I just read this week, we actually work more now than we've ever worked before. Like the the average work week has gone up from 41 hours a week to 47 hours a week. Isn't that something? So we work more than they did 100 years ago. And that's with modern machinery that's supposed to help us work less. Or like take the internet, for example. You know, Al Gore invented that, what, about 25 years ago, right? Remember? And, you know, supposedly, do you remember how that was sold to us? Like it's supposed to bring us all together in one happy global community. The World Wide Web, we're webbing, right? And instead, we are more divided than we've ever been before. It's just using those to illustrate my point. We seem to think that we've come up with these fixes, and the fix just makes it worse or it creates another problem that has to get fixed. And obviously, there's a hole in our bucket, human race, and there's nothing we can do to earthly fix that hole. If there was a way for us to fix it, we would have fixed it a long time ago, I think. We would have figured it out. But we haven't yet. Everything we do makes it worse. So where does it come from? 
This might be review for some of you, but indulge me, please, for a few moments, okay? Genesis is the first book of the Bible. The very first couple of pages of the first book of the Bible tell us that God created the heavens and the earth. He made it. It's all his. He spoke it into existence. And then Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 tells us this. Then God formed, and that's a key word, the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. God formed, he took the dust that he spoke into existence, and then God forms from that dust this man that we name, we call Adam. The word formed there in Hebrew is the word yatsar. It's the same word that was used for a potter forming a piece of clay that God takes out of the dust and he forms and shapes this man, this, he yatsars him. And that's important. Hang on to that for a moment. The story continues into Genesis chapter 2. And Adam and God are living together in perfect harmony, perfect unity, working together to rule over the world that God had just created. And at some point, God recognizes that it's not good for Adam to be alone. Adam needs someone just like him. And so, Genesis chapter 2, verse 22 tells us that God puts Adam to sleep, and it says, then the Lord God made a woman from, and that's the key word there, made, from the rib, and brought her to the man. So, God formed Adam, but he made Eve. And the Hebrew word there for made is the word batna, and it means to build And we see it used often throughout the Old Testament. People build cities. And it's also used kind of in the negative at sometimes in speaking about idols. People fashioned or built idols. They banod them. So God did that. He made this woman from Adam. And you see what he's doing? It's a natural progression for things as God's creating. So he, he takes the dust and he forms like a potter forms clay, Adam. And then from Adam, he builds a woman. Some ladies would say he made an improvement. Right? So he, he forms Adam, he builds a woman, but really what God does is he brings us together in, in, into a co-equal relationship, which is beautiful. Because, see, women might say, well, hey, we give birth to men, so that makes us superior to men. Right? And men might say, well, no, we come first. That makes us superior to women. But actually, we need one another. Because women are here from men, and men are here from women. And so God puts us beautifully in this kind of co-equal relationship. You see that we come from one another, which makes us the perfect complement to each other. You got two genders, male, female, formed and built from one another and for one another. So far, so good. You come into Genesis chapter 3, and this is where humanity goes off the rails. Up until then, Adam and Eve and God lived in perfect harmony, working together, ruling over the world together in relationship. As long as Adam and Eve lived under the rule of God, they could rule everything else just fine. It went great in the kind of this divine dance, if you will, where it was beautiful, it was life-giving, right? It was wonderful, powerful, productive, healthy. And then you come to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, and this is where Adam and Eve make the decision. 
the decision to create their own dance. The, the decision to seek wisdom and knowledge on their own terms without being in relationship with God. They separate themselves from God. And that one decision is what has led to all of the ruin that you and I see every day. Not just that one choice, but all the choices that you make and I make to do the exact same thing, to find wisdom apart from God, to find life apart from God, to do my own dance, to follow my own heart, to follow my own feelings, whatever it is, however you want to say it. But we make that choice, and every time we make that choice, we bring a little more ruin into this world. And rather than, re rather than return to the one who formed us, rather than come back to the potter, we tend to stubbornly continue to try to fix it ourselves. Let's tape it. Let's plug it. Let's, and every time we try to fix the hole in the bucket, we simply make matters worse. But at some point, and some of you have reached this point, at some point you wake up in this flash of honesty, this moment of clarity, and you say, wait a second, I'm not God. I'm not the potter. I can't do this. I can't run the universe. This is, I, just can't, I can't run my own world, right? I can't do this. I realize I'm fashioned. I was formed. I'm earthy. My eyes get open and I can see the dust from which I'm made, right? I, whoa. You know where we see this most clearly? Funerals. It's why as a pastor, I love funerals. I really do. There's, some, there's something honest about a funeral, man. It brings us face to face with our mortality, with our, our dustiness, if you will. I realize I, I am vulnerable and I am uh, mortal and uh, I am not in charge. I am not the potter, right? There's something about it that humbles us at a funeral. There's something about that. So maybe you've woken up to this. Maybe this is you. You're sitting here well aware of the mess, right, that you've created, of the hole in the bucket that you have. Now, that's not what you tell other people. We don't usually talk about the hole in our bucket very often. We, we give other people the cleaned-up version, kind of like Janelle said earlier, right? We, we do. We we give them the public relation version of ourselves, you know, my Instagram version, right? That's, that's what we do typically. But the truth is, if you want to be honest, right, you're, you're 25 and you're beginning to realize life's a lot harder than you thought it would be. You're 35 and you're starting to realize, what is life all about? You're 45 and you're starting to come face to face with your own mortality. Things don't work like they used to. You're 65, 75, and you're starting to wonder, did I waste my life? It all went so fast. See? We, we begin to wake up to our mortality, and the good news is, I got good news for you today, and that's this. Your life matters. It does. It matters right where you are. It matters. But your life doesn't matter because you say it matters. Your life doesn't matter because some purple-haired public school teacher said that you're wonderful you know, blue sunshine in your face, said, oh, you can do anything you want to do. Like, that's not the reason why your life matters. Your life matters because you have been formed, lovingly fashioned by God. 
You have a potter, a potter who, who saw you, who conceived of you before the creation of the world. He, he had a purpose and a plan for you, and he's been working that. Like, that's why your life matters. That's why it counts. Here's a word picture that might help you. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. Now, what we're going to do for the next couple of minutes is this. So this is where the story ends. So Isaiah 64 is the conclusion, and then we're going to rewind and go back earlier in the book of Isaiah, and we'll show how, this, how the people of Israel actually came to this conclusion. But after a lot of fighting and after a lot of arguing, the people of Israel finally admit in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8, and yet, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are the potter. We're formed by your hand. Now, like I said, they didn't always see it that way. Earlier in Isaiah, in chapter um, 29, verse 16, the prophet Isaiah is basically arguing with the people. And he's reminding them, he goes, how foolish can you be, he tells them. He is the potter, and he is certainly greater than you, the clay. Can you hear him preaching that? Should the created thing say of the one who made it, no, he didn't make me. Does a jar ever say the potter who made me is stupid? And the answer is obviously no. Isaiah continues to argue with these people about this. And essentially, he reaches a point in chapter 45 where, where Isaiah kind of uh, maybe running out of options, if you will, in the discussion, in the argument, says to them, listen, if you don't, if you do not let go of this idea that you're in charge, and if you continue down this path, Isaiah warns them, that you will go into exile, that the Babylonians will come one of these days, and they're going to take you into exile, and you're going to be enslaved for 70 years. And then Isaiah tells them, this is the beginning of chapter 45, Isaiah tells them, though, that, that then God will raise up someone, and he'll, he'll deliver you. And he'll get you out of exile, and you'll come back. And his name is going to be Cyrus, and he's a pagan king, Right? Now, that's pretty remarkable, because Isaiah said that 100 years before it happened, right? So that just, just to speak to the truth even of God's word, here's Isaiah, 100 years before it happened, says, you're going to go into exile, and then Cyrus is going to be raised up to rescue you, okay? So here's the message. The people to whom Isaiah was preaching, guess what? They were more angry about the idea that God would raise up a pagan king to rescue them than they were about going into exile. Isn't that something? And so in response to that, Isaiah says these words. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9. He says, What sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it? Stop, you're doing it wrong. Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? And the obvious answer to these rhetorical questions is what? No. Precisely. They're rhetorical. The pot does not talk back to the potter. The clay doesn't get mouthy, right, with the one who's got it in his hands. However, you and I do, don't we? Here we are 
more determined than ever to go our own way. Here we are, more determined than ever to tell God how to do it. You're wrong, God. I'm right. My feelings are right. My perspective is right. See, God made a mistake. He's not doing it right. Have you ever been there? I know I have been, where I've questioned why God did something. Have, have you not ever been a little flabbergasted by something that happened? And you're like, God, this is, it feels like he doesn't know what he's doing. I've accused him of that before. The pot, complaining to the potter that he's doing it wrong. Isaiah says, that's a, that's a fool's game. You keep doing that, it's going to bring trouble. But here's the good news. If I'm willing to change my thinking, if I'm willing to admit that I'm the one that created the hole in the bucket, if I'm willing to admit that this mess is mine, and I'm willing to change the way I think and accept the truth that God is my potter, and he made me, and he has a purpose and a plan and a destiny, then God is willing to step into the mess that I created and walk with me out of it. It's amazing. And this is what's depicted in Jeremiah 18. We're finally at Jeremiah 18, 1 to 12. And let me just read it for us. And I'm reading it for us from the New Living Translation. Um, I just happened to find this translation really seems to express this well and clearly, so that's why I'm using it. So if it's a little different, that's why. But uh, Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12, the Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, Go down to the potter's shop, and I will speak to you there. So I did as he told me, and I found the potter working at his wheel. But the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped, so he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. Then the Lord gave me this message. O Israel, can I not do to you as this potter has done to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. If I announce that a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, but then that nation renounces its evil ways, I will not destroy it as I had planned. And if I announce that I will plant and build up a certain nation or kingdom, but then that nation turns evil and refuses to obey me, I will not bless it as I said I would. Isn't that something? So isn't it crazy that, that repentance is the thing that makes the difference, doesn't it? Isn't that? If, if this nation, and he's talking about a whole nation, if they continue down that perilous track, they will be destroyed. But if they repent, God says, then it's off. I'll bless you. And if you're living in blessing and you turn from that, God says, it's off. The blessing's off. So repentance, so my, my, our ability to accept this truth that God is the potter and I am the clay really is a determining factor in whether or not I receive blessing or I'm in trouble. See? 
And he goes on to say this, look at verse 11. Therefore, Jeremiah, go and warn all Judah and Jerusalem, say to them, this is what the Lord says, I am planning disaster for you instead of good. So turn from your evil ways, each of you, and do what's right. God doesn't want to destroy them. He doesn't. He does not take delight in that. But the people replied, look at verse 12, it's pretty sad. Don't waste your breath. That just pierces my heart. We will continue to live as we want to, stubbornly following our own evil desires. Ouch. <clears throat> Ouch. I look at that, I think, ooh, is that a message for America and that's really not the point of the message. I'm just thinking, wow, God, may we turn, right? May we repent. But I do want to call our attention to verse 4 this morning. Verse 4, look at that again. The potter has this piece of clay on his wheel, and it doesn't work the way that he intended it to work, and so he crushes it into a lump of clay again, and he starts over with the clay. So you might not know this, but Meredith Clark, our own Meredith is, a, uh, is our resident potter. She's a, a master potter. Is there, what's the feminine version? A potress? I don't know how you would say that. A potter, a potter. But uh, she actually, this is her handiwork right here. This is, uh, Meredith made these. And she, so thank you, Meredith, for providing this from your collection, right? And she's given us a, a demonstration from clay here, just a raw clay from the process of forming all the way up to glazing and the finished product, and so thank you very much. It's beautiful. But Meredith has really provided some great insight into Jeremiah 18.4, saying that this, this process where the potter takes this clay and then it's not working the right way, he takes it off and he crushes it and does it again, that process in the pottery world is called reclaiming the pottery. She's reclaiming the clay, Right? And, and, uh, and there's two things that have to happen in a piece of clay in order for it to be in the right position, I guess, to be able to be formed into a pot. First of all, you have to get all the impurities out of it. If you think about it, this was in the earth since the creation of the world. So this has rocks, twigs, you know, parts of dead animals stuck in it right over the years, whatever's been stuck in it. It's been in the earth for all this time. And so you pull this out, and the first step, you have to get the junk out of the clay in order to be able to work it, right? And I, I love that as a picture because that's what Jesus does with us, doesn't he? I, I come to him with my junk, and Jesus forgives my junk, right? He, he gets it out of me. But the second thing that has to happen is the clay has to be centered in the very center of the potter's wheel because it's held there by centrifugal force. So if the clay is off balance, if it's not in the center, it, it, it wobbles, it won't form. And Meredith was telling me that actually the clay fights the hand of the potter as the potter tries to move it to the center of the wheel, and sometimes it fights pretty hard, depending on how heavy the clay is, you know, it 
going to throw you harder. And Meredith says she can only do about five pounds. She's, she's worked out enough. She's up to like a five-pound lump of clay. That's all the heavier she can throw because otherwise it'll, you know, rip her arm off kind of thing. Like it's, so, you, so the potter has to apply constant pressure to move this piece of clay to the center of the wheel so that it'll spin properly and form. It's a great picture for what happens for you and me. Right, I come to Jesus with junk, and he, ha- and he reclaims me. He reclaims me. He, he crushes, he works that junk out, right? And this brings up something that I think connects with last weekend and the Holy Spirit weekend and what we were talking about then, that maybe this might answer some of your questions even regarding that. Um, I think Karis said it best. She, was, um, she explained this to our life group on Thursday night. I thought it was a great illustration. You and I are body, soul, spirit. And so my body is my flesh, right? And that has its own desires and it has its own um, urges and needs and so forth. Um, and sometimes that can get us into trouble, can it? If we follow those urges. But then my spirit is something different. The spirit is the part of me that connects with God. But biblically, my spirit is dead before I accept Christ as my Savior. You and I are born, like, physically alive, but spiritually dead. The spirit is dead, right? And so when I give my... Why? Because death is being separated from God. And remember Adam and Eve and the whole tree thing? And we talked about that earlier. They separated from God. So now we're living in this dead state. We're separated from him spiritually. But when I give my heart to Christ and I ask him to forgive me of my sin, and he makes me right, he comes into my life as my savior, a resurrection occurs. My spirit comes alive. And now I I see God, I see life in a whole different way. Now I can hear his voice, I can respond to him. Like this relationship with God opens up like I didn't have before. Why? Because my spirit is alive. It was dead before, but now it's alive. Does that make sense? And look, when Jesus forgives me of my sin, he forgives all of my sin. He doesn't just forgive me for part of my sin, but my soul, which is my will and my emotions, right? That's, that's, my, that's, that's the part of me that makes my decisions and has my attitudes and uh, has my beliefs. And like, that's that part of me. That has picked up all kinds of junk over the years. And really, weekends like last weekend are about dealing with those things in the soul. See? And how many of you know that sometimes some of those things just get broken off right away? And sometimes there's a process. And I really don't understand why God chooses to do this immediately and to take a process with this, but he does. And as we're talking today, he's the potter, and I trust him in the process. Amen, right? So this is my soul. Now, so Jesus has forgiven me of all my sins, but I still got junk. He's forgiven me for the junk. Praise God, I'm not condemned for the junk, but he's very much interested in helping to get rid of that junk. Very much interested in removing that because that's hindering the final product that he's building in my life. Amen? So that's, that's that first thing. But then the second step that has to happen is I need to move into the center of the potter's wheel. 
because it's only there that he can begin to form me. I need to move into the center of God's will for my life. And, and you and I are always seem to be, we seem to be resisting that at times. I, I know that God knows what's best, but eh, I don't always like that. All right, and, and so God, God is applying this pressure. Have you ever felt the pressure of God in your life to move you into his will? He does that, doesn't he? And, and the message of Jeremiah is this. Don't resist the hand of God as he moves you into the center of his will. Like, let him move you there. His will is the best thing that could ever happen to you, the best thing that could happen in your life. And that's the second point that Jeremiah is making. If we continue to resist his will, it's going to continue to cause trouble in our lives. And he wants us to, 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 come, to, to learn that his hands are good, that he's making something good, and that I can trust the potter's hands. I really can even when it hurts, I can trust the potter's hands. And this is a hard lesson for stubborn ones like you and me to learn. It is. This is why the first stage in our walk with Jesus is depicted as potter and clay. Because we need to learn this important lesson. It's, it's a vivid illustration of where we all must begin in our relationship with God. And that's this. He is God. I am not. Would you, would you be willing to confess that with me right now out loud? He is God. I am not. There's a lot of freedom in that. You just wake up every morning. You're God and I am not. This is your day, not mine. You're in charge. He is God. I am not. Can I be satisfied with that truth? Can, can you trust that what God is doing in your life is ultimately what's the best for you? That's a process I've found. Learning to trust that. Haven't you? I, don't, I, I mean, I, I mentally say, yes, Lord, I trust you. And then God starts doing that work, and I, then I'm, maybe I don't trust you. It, so it's a process that we're in, you and I, right? I'm learning that ultimately what he wants is best for my life. Well, what's he doing? Where's he taking me? Let me just kind of, let's begin to wrap this up with this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, one of my favorite Bible verses, gives me a great picture for what God's doing in you. It says, for we are, and again, this is out of the New Living Translation, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And I put it in parentheses there, the Greek word for masterpiece that's in the Bible is the Greek word poema. Sound familiar? Poema, poema, poem. You are God's poem. See, what is God doing with this lump of clay? What's the potter making? He could do anything he wants to, couldn't he? That's important to learn. God could do anything he wants to with me. And you know what he's doing? Making you a masterpiece. You are his poem, you are his magnum opus, you're the ideal expression of his creative being. And this is why it's so important to know God as our potter, because it elevates me as the pot. I look like my potter. Huh? That's not bad. My life speaks of the one who made me. See, 
I'm a reflection of the one who made me. If you're not made, if you're just the result of like your own imagination and your, your own thing, then you know what? You'll be confused and constantly questioning your existence. But when you embrace your clayness, and I just made that word up, clayness, I guess it's a word. It is now. When you embrace your clayness, right, and you embrace, the, you embrace the fact that God is your potter and you're his clay, can I tell you what happens? You worry a lot less about the imperfections in your life, and you embrace the process that God has you in. Because he's working on me, and he's not done yet. But I know where he's going. It's going to be really awesome, Right? And so I trust him in that process. I can rest in the process, and I don't have to worry. He's not done with me yet. If I could just take a second and just speak to something in our culture, I think this is why many people in our culture are so easily triggered, whether it's wokeism or secular humanism or whatever it is that you want to call it, uh, in this philosophy that's predominant in our world today. They're creating a utopian world of political correctness. But you see, it's literally just made up in people's minds. It's not rooted in anything. And this is why the rules change every day. This is why somebody could have been the poster child for this movement five years ago, but then they said something wrong, and now they're canceled. Now they're blacklisted. Well, the rules changed. They missed the memo somewhere along the way. See? It's because it's constantly evolving. It's constantly being formed. And you can't challenge these people without making them angry. Why? Because the assumptions are ones that they've developed. They come up out of their own head, out of their own heart. So you challenge their assumptions, and you're challenging them. It's a personal attack. And they take it very personally. They, right? And, and so the, they're trying to be the potter. And they're more anxious than anyone else in history. More anxious, more nervous. Of course. There are literally not enough reassignment surgeries. There's not enough equity and diversity classes that can fix that. The, the only thing that will be the solution, my friends, is to return to the potter. He made me. He knows what he's doing. I'm clay in his hands. And I discover the thrill of what and who he's made me to be. Right? This is the difference see, between, between that and what I'm saying, my friend. You and I have confidence. Why? Because our belief system isn't rooted in us. I'm not the potter. I've already admitted that. I'm not the one in charge. So if, if somebody's antagonistic against my belief system, it's not antagonistic against me. They're antagonistic against the potter, right? So I don't need to take it personally. It's not a personal threat. In, in fact, you can even be antagonistic against Christianity. I'll join you. Christianity's not my potter. It's not, right? So, so we can spend all day. I'm happy. I'll, I'll probably bring my list of complaints, and it'll be longer than their list of complaints against Christianity, right? I've been in this my whole life. Well, I can tell you all the, I can show you where all the bruises are. Sure, Christianity is not my potter, so I'm confident in that. You see, I can rest in the fact that I have a potter. He knows what he's doing, and now I worry less, and I trust the process that he has me in, which means I return to joy. That's what that means.
There's such joy and there's such freedom in not defining who I am, but in discovering who I am. I'm not defining it. He is. I just get the joy of discovering it. It's so much fun. See, now the question is, what has God made in me? You know? You ever wake up and look at yourself in the mirror in the morning with your bed head and your bad breath and go, man, that ain't that bad. Look at what you're doing, God. It's pretty good right there. Isn't that, is that not what the writer of Psalm 139 says? When he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Does that not sound cocky to you? It would if he was the one making himself, but he's not. You hear what he says? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I've been made. I'm not making it up. It's in the scripture, right? And you have also been fearfully and wonderfully made. And you say, well, how was I made? What's he making? Just three quick things, and then we'll close. So, Karis, you can come and play if you want, Jonathan. Three quick things. The first one is this. You're made in his image, number one. Genesis chapter 1, 27, we're made in the very image of God. You look like your potter. You look like your potter. And that's pretty cool when you consider that your potter is God himself. Don't devalue you. You look like your potter, and your potter is God. So that's a motivation to read your Bible, because it's here that God reveals himself. This is divine revelation, right? It's who he is. And the better I know him, the better I can know myself. I look like my potter. So what's what's he doing here? Well, I better look here to see what he's doing in me. The second thing is this. You are stunning. What's God making? You are stunning. You're breathtaking. Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 9. So... Lately, I've been digging into Song of Songs, preparing for the summer, because that's coming after this series, going to be in the Song of Songs. I can't wait. So excited. But in the Song of Songs, one of the ways to look at the song is as God speaking to us. And it's it's a song that celebrates the divine dance, the romance between Jesus and the church. It's beautiful. And... In Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 9, Jesus says this to you and me. You ready for this? Jesus says, you have stolen my heart. Do you hear that? Let that sink in. Please let that sink in. In fact, I've been reading chapter 4, Song of Songs chapter 4, almost every morning as part of my devotions, reading it out loud and letting Jesus speak it to me. And in verse 9, he says, You have stolen my heart. Wow. So if I have stolen the heart of God, that makes this pretty incredible. Does it not? The potter makes what he, he, he makes. He, he forms me from clay, and he steps back, and his breath is taken away by what he's made. 
And, and he says, you're stunning in your complexity, in your ability, in your creativity, in your capacity. You're, you're stunning. You're literally unparalleled by anything else in all of creation. You are. See? Wow. And then the third thing that you are, that God's making into you, is he's making you in the image of Jesus. He's making you to look just like Jesus. You know all those things about Jesus that people admire, even people that don't believe in Jesus. You know how even people that don't believe in Jesus think he was a good teacher, think he was a great guy, think he was loving, and, you know, a lot of people think that about Jesus. You know all those great things about Jesus that people admire? Yeah, God's doing those in you. He's making you to look just like Jesus. See? Now, does that sound like a good plan to you? Does that sound like the potter has a pretty good plan? Like he's working something great in your life. Don't you agree? Does that sound like a plan that you could trust? That you could say, yeah, I think I can trust that. So, that. so that even if I'm in the middle of this process and there might be a, a few bumps, it might get a little painful between here and here, <laughs> that I can trust that he's taking me someplace really good. And I can rest in that. There's such confidence and such joy knowing that I'm not the potter. So much freedom. I don't have to create myself. I'm being created. Right? And I can rest in that. And that's why this is the important first step in all of our relationships with Jesus. I have to understand He's God, I am not. He's the potter, I'm the clay. He's making a good thing, and I'm trusting him with it. Now, there's a lot we have to learn, and we'll cover that in the coming weeks, but we start here. Can you rest in it? I pray you can. Well, that about wraps it up for today. We're really glad that you joined us. We pray that this message blessed you. If you're looking for some more information, you can check out the resources page at newriverchurch.org and you'll find the journal for this entire series. God bless you. Have an awesome day.